Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hey, Lori, how are you doing? Tom, I'm doing really well. How's your summer going? Uh, it's going pretty well. Um, again, we can play the game of can you guess when we recorded uh, this particular portion of the podcast. But yesterday we had uh, tornado sirens in Chicago and a tornado touchdown right near uh, O'Hare Airport. So that was exciting. But um, beyond that, yeah, it's just been a hot uh, kind of nice summer, taking the kids swimming as much as possible and, and that, that whole sort of thing. And, and you, you just got back from a, a trip, yeah? Yeah, I just got back from uh, London, not too, well, last week, actually. Um, and that was really nice. It was lovely to have a break from the 100-plus um, temperatures in Dallas and uh, go to gray, cloudy skies, London, and, um, you know, visited a lot of bookstores, new and used, Brought back a lot of books. Um, so, yeah, had a really great time. So, good summer so far here, too. Good. And just as by means of plugging across the pond, you got to see your collaborator uh, on that in person, right, Sam? Yeah, we um, we met up in Cambridge. We took a train from London to Cambridge. It's about an hour train ride. And Sam went to Cambridge, so he came down from Norwich uh, to meet us, and we uh, went punting on the Cam River, uh, which was an experience. It was a little bit like bumper boats. Um, it was so crowded. It was a Saturday afternoon. There were graduations going on. So, I mean, it was everyone, it seemed, that wasn't at a graduation ceremony was on the river. So um, it made it um, kind of difficult for maneuvering the the boat. Um you know, had had a few uh, drinks at some pubs, and yeah, it was really great to to see him and to catch up because we only see each other maybe once a year, if that. So it was nice. Very cool. Um, so on today's backlist focus, uh, we are going to be discussing Imperium by Christian Crocht, uh, translated by Daniel Bowles. Um, this was my recommendation. Um, it's a book I. We were just talking about it before we started recording. I'm pretty sure I picked it up and read it because of the second of Croc's books that um, was that came out in translation recently, The Dead. Um, that came up on my radar, and I was intrigued. Um, and so, but I also went and grabbed Imperium first and read it. I'm pretty sure that's how it went, and I was floored. I really, really love this book. I think it's delightfully bizarre. Um, very, very funny. Uh, it's a incredible novel of ideas and manias, um, and it's 175 pages, yet somehow crams in, I don't know, more more action and 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 more than a lot of novels double its length. Um, what did you think of it, Lori? Well, you're a very good recommender, Tom, and um, I guess that's your your book selling chops. Um, coming to the fore. So I've liked everything that you've recommended. This so far is my favorite. Um, this book is so wild. 
so funny. And um, as I told you before we started recording, um, I knew really nothing about it going in. And I still really don't know much about it or about the author uh, coming out after finishing it. But I thought it was just a wonderful, crazy work of imagination. But you told me yes and no. Yeah. um, And so this is something I didn't actually look into the first time I read it. It's only like, reading it the second time around and kind of poking around a little bit more that um, I came across the fact that this is, this is historical fiction, but it's, it's even more than that. It's an, I mean, it's pulling almost every single character in this novel. It was a real person was alive and interacting with each other um, at this time in this place. Um, Obviously tons of, fictional liberties taken and all that. But um, August Engelhart, the um, the focus, the protagonist of the novel, uh, was a real person. And uh, his beliefs were exactly what they were presented as uh, in the novel. Um, and we'll get into those in just a second. But yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, we kind of saw this a bit with even, um, I was about to say Gob's grief, but Job's grief. Um, I'm never not going to call it gob. I'm just, it's just stuck in my head now. Much like with, I mean, in Job's grief, there were, as we discussed, there were a ton of real historical figures who are, I mean, beyond even just Walt Whitman that populated that novel. I mean, this one is almost even more so in that um, I'm sure if you went through it with a fine tooth comb, you would absolutely come up with a number of completely fictional characters but I don't know that you find that many. Most of the characters in this novel, most of the named characters in this novel were real people alive in um, Oceania at this time. And that's, in some ways, I think that's even neater. Like it's it's such a work, uh, it, it takes a certain kind of creative genius and skill to take the real world and make it even more, I, I think in a way, to really, to take flesh and blood characters and people and make them into flesh and blood characters. Um, Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a cool one. Yeah. Well, the protagonist of this one, um, Engelhart is so, so eccentric that it feels like there's no way he could have been real. So why don't you tell us about him, Tom? Sure. Okay, so Imperium is following uh, August Engelhart, uh, who is a uh, in his twenties German man. Um, this is taking place um, about nineteen ten ish, and he when we first meet him, he is on a steamer making his way towards uh, the German holdings in the South Seas in the South Pacific, and everyone else on board is in their you know their white linens and trying to beat the heat that way. And he uh, has a beard that goes down um, into his tunic. He's wearing a long white robe, sandals, long hair, uh, and is uh, just sticks out like a sore thumb. It's quickly established that he is a vegetarian, which uh, does not fit well into um, the society of his time. Certainly the German society that he's uh, leaving. And he's, traveling um, to the South Pacific in the hopes of establishing a colony, establishing a place where folks can 
worship the sun. He is a nudist and also uh, subsists entirely on coconuts. He has decided that the coconut, <laughs> he, he has a somewhat complicated philosophical theological system um, in which he feels that the consumption of vegetables, fruits and vegetables, is the natural way for humans to exist, um, and that God is something more akin to vegetation than anything else. But but humans are in God's image. But the coconut, because it is closest to the the shape of the human head, is the closest to God as a result, because it is also it is now a fruit that is um, shaped like God, and that it uh, grows at the top of the coconut tree, and so is the closest to God's light. It is the ultimate thing that we should only and we should only exist on it. And he's he's really trying to or hoping, I think, to buy a, a coconut plantation in one of the far-flung islands in the Pacific and and kind of create a utopian community. Yes. I mean, at the outset, his goal is absolutely to to have this place set apart where like-minded folks can travel and join with him and together they can make this into a movement that would then um, spread across the world. That this order of the sun, as he refers to it, will by force of will, um, and this comes up a few times in the novel, but by force of will and by force of argument will change mankind's destiny. And as the novel goes along, Engelhart more and more starts to wonder whether or not he's actually begun to change his the properties of his own body, whether because he only exists on coconut, that he is himself becoming coconut, which I think gives you some idea of some of the directions that <laughs> Engelhart's life, uh, life starts to go. <laughs> So yeah, he makes his way. Uh, eventually, uh, the island that, he's, that he purchases is part of what is now Papua New Guinea and has the island, works with the folks who already live on the island. And it, in many ways, his outlook on the world is pretty, at the outset, um, quite progressive for the time. He, at one point, is in Australia and prevents some um, folks there from beating to death a black man, saying that no other hu- no human being should be treated like this. I mean, he's certainly a colonizer. Um, there's no doubt of that. But he also views the other people as people. He may think that he wants to bring them into his order of the sun and to improve upon their lives, you know, not knowing anything about their lives, but he also isn't viewing them as something subhuman. So he does, at least at the outset, uh, have that going for him. Yeah, and he also very much disdains the prejudices and and racism of his countrymen in Germany that um, are abusive um, and and will become worse than that um, as the wars. Uh, you know, start to happen uh, against the Jewish people. At least that's how he he starts out. Absolutely. I mean, and Kracht goes to some lengths to draw connections. I mean, as I said at the outset, this is also a bit of a novel of ideas and and, and about modernity um, and about the fracturing. There's a really great line he has about um, the fracturing of reality that's taking place in this time. On page 45, this splitting of reality into various components was, however, one of the chief characteristics of the age in which Engelhart's story takes place. To wit, 
Modernity at dawn, poets suddenly wrote fragmented lines. Grant grating in the atonal music, which to unschooled ears merely sounded horrible, was premiered before audience who shook their baffled heads, was pressed into records and reproduced, not to mention the invention of the cinemat- cinematograph, which was able to render our reality exactly as tangible and temporally congruent as it occurred. It was as if it were possible to cut a slice of the present and preserve it in, in perpetuity between the perforations of a strip of celluloid. And then he goes on to say, all this, however, did not move Engelhart. He was on his way toward withdrawing not only from modernity donning the world over, but altogether from what we non-Gnostics denote as progress as, well, civilization. So Engelhart is not just trying to remake the world in <laughs> through, through the light of the coconut, as it were. He's also wholesale rejecting the society in which he has developed, which... I don't know. It, it makes for an interesting foil, um, an interesting counterpoint as uh, Cracked continues to bring in other viewpoints, uh, force Engelhart into interaction with that outer world. When he purchases the plantation, it is begun as a capitalist enterprise. That is what's going to power it forward. Uh, as it progresses, it becomes it becomes progressively more, you know, socialist or communist or whatever the phrasing that the various characters use to describe it is. It's more that he just does he can't make it work, so he stops paying his bills. Um, sort of deal. It's it's more by default that it goes in that direction. Yeah, it's it, it's a it's an interesting novel, not only because of like the gorgeous writing and you know sort of the the layers of an actual historical figure and you know the fictionalization of it and 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 just the period in which it's being written but also just how many different thoughts cracked is throwing in here and blending into into this tale um it's really it's really quite impressive i find it totally and Engelhart when he um lands in in what is now papua new guinea um, he's certainly not the only or the first German person to, you know, have made landfall. There's already kind of a, I don't know, a, a, almost like a frontiers colonial type kind of setup on the island. You've got a governor, you've got, um, you know, a couple of churches, a couple of stores, of course, you know, a drinking establishment, you know, I think there's a whorehouse. And you have this this woman named Queen Emma, who Engelhart ultimately ends up buying his coconut plantation from. Do you want to talk about her a little bit? I thought that she, we, we see her, she disappears for quite a while, but then she comes back to us at the end of the book in a really kind of surprising way. But she's kind of this, uh, we, we understand that she's attractive. She's around 50 years old. And she's quite, um, she's quite savvy. You know, he, he, the governor sends Engelhart to her when, you know, he knows that Engelhart is interested in, in buying a coconut plantation. And, you know, she tells him about this coconut plantation that she has like in the middle of, of the island and it's huge. But then there's also this, um, this remote island, maybe, you know, a few miles off of the main island where there's also like a small grove of coconuts. And she clearly wants him to have that one. She starts talking about how much easier it would be to transport the coconut oil and the other products that he's going to be harvesting than having to go through the interior of of the main island to to get his product out. And she offers a price and he pretty much just, just swallows it and 
and goes to live on the island then for, I don't know, two decades maybe? A long time. Yeah. Um, she also, um, so her name is Emma Forsyth. She, you'll be happy to know, is also real. She existed. Um, and it sounds like her life was even cooler than, I mean, even more interesting and fascinating than what's even described in the novel, or at least equal to it. Did people call her Queen Emma? Yes. She was called Queen Emma. Awesome. So she's uh, half Samoan, half American. She had a few different lovers and husbands in her lifetime. But over time, yeah, she was able to acquire uh, through very savvy business dealings uh, land that she then rented out, sold on to other folks like Engelhart. She also, in terms of her savvy, when she was describing the island in the interior, so she offered the island, the, the uh, land in the interior, and the island that Engelhart ends up choosing, she offered them for the exact same price, even though the interior one was about 2,100 acres and the island was about like, what, 100, something like that. But she also made the point that the land in the interior is available because the previous owner covered his, the workers, his um, wife and children himself with pitch and set them all on fire, thus making it seem very unattractive to want to take over over that location, um, which is quite, quite bright of her. But yeah, and so she, she in some ways is this personage that is not, this is a German territory. This is part of the German empire. She is not German, um, and she's existing somewhat apart from everyone else, both because of you know her her family background and, and the fact that she's not a German citizen, but she remains intrinsic to the community and uh, incredibly powerful because of her her business savvy and and her uh, her dealings. Um, at the end of the novel, we find out that she died in Monaco at the casinos, and that is also true. That is where she died, and her ashes were eventually returned to, um, I believe, to New Guinea, um, where they were spread. Well, it was interesting because there's, uh, she's, she seems to be like the only person in this community, or one of the only people, that doesn't uh, frequent the, the German cultural club, where, you know, for lack of probably a lot of entertainment options that's kind of where where the germans kind of go and congregate and gossip and it's kind of like the 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 core of their social world and she you're right she just kind of sticks to herself and um i don't know i had a mental image of her just kind of being aloof and just like accumulating her wealth like over time patiently I mean, I get the sense that that's what she what she was and did from the the brief research I was able to uh, do with uh, do on some of the characters and some of the folks that appeared. She was at one point uh, partnered with a basically a pirate, um, for lack of a better word. He was engaged in um, running counterfeit goods. He may or may not have been engaged in kidnapping folks and then selling them on. I mean, the woman had quite quite the interesting I mean, she made the most of living at the end of the uh, 19th century i would say in terms of uh, adventure and and the like yeah and living at living at the end of the world too yes at the, end, all, 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 at the edges of everything and somehow still being even further apart from what from what was there in terms of uh, a western presence but yeah i mean so so the the 
town that he initially lands in where he meets um, Emma and purchases the island. And the island is just off, as you said, a couple miles off the off the that island uh, is called uh, Herbert Show. Uh, it's now called uh, Kokopo. Uh, it was the regional um, hub for that part of the empire. Um, and there's a really amazing moment about two thirds of the way through the novel, not even two thirds, maybe halfway, where Englehart travels to Australia. Basically, he's trying to, this is in the early stages of him getting um, coconut oil production going on the island. And he's trying to find folks to, like, he's, he's trying to find vendors. He's trying to find people who will take on his brand of coconut oil. And while he's gone, there is a decision that is made very quickly and executed very quickly to move the town, to take down all the buildings and move them about 10 miles up the coast because the the bay that they're in isn't sufficient. It's too shallow and there appears to be an underwater current that's pulling more and more sand into it and it's getting more expensive to dredge. So they're going to move to a better location. So they literally move the entire town, like, down to the nails and boards to a new spot, recite everything as best they can. Although now the Chinatown district, you go up to it instead of down or something like that. Uh, there are missing trees and all that. And when, when Engelhart comes back and he's had this very strange experience um, in Australia, when he comes back, he gets off the ship and he sees the town that he know, and he knows that it's there. It, everything looks right, except everything looks completely wrong. It's it's even it is such. There's something so brilliantly descriptive of colonialism. I think in that moment of how they can just pick up and move an entire town and dislocate everyone and 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 disorient everyone involved, even the people who who took part in the process of moving it can't they can feel that there's something just sort of off here that there's some sort of intrusion taking place it's just yeah it's a it's it's one of the many very smart things that that he does uh throughout the novel well Engelhardt has a relatively rough i would say first several months on his coconut plantation in this remote island he's he's bit by a bazillion mosquitoes um he can't stand the sand the the people that are resident on the island that for lack of a better term uh, you know the local people the natives they're friendly to him you know he offers them all jobs and it seems that they're trying to help him and are amenable to working for him and you know picking coconuts and so all that's good but he's even though he was already living a very ecstatic life in in the old world when he comes to <laughs> when he comes to this island and tries to kind of you know bring his bring his trunk of books that he can never keep dry enough and and just kind of live he finds it quite challenging yeah absolutely i mean there are elements to Engelhart that where he clearly is more of a loner. He is an introvert, certainly. And he also does want to build a community, but he also clearly wants to sort of just be on his own. Like, or at, least, at the very least, within the context of that community, he would like everyone to be just like him and be like-minded the way that he's like-minded. Or, or like, no, that's a <laughs> poorly phrased <laughs> phrase, but the, he wants, if he is to have company, he needs them to be like him. And in some ways, and as his time alone progresses and he becomes even more 
particular, he needs to be the one that's setting setting the rules, taking the lead on what they do, how they do it, and what the viewpoints are, which immediately brings him into conflict with the first person that arrives to join him. I'm going to make one attempt to say the gentleman's name, Aukens, A-U-E-C-K-E-N-S, and I apologize, but I do not speak German, and occasionally that's entirely too many um, vowels for me to (laughs) pronounce properly. But young German man shows up, professes to be of the same viewpoints as far as vegetarianism, as far as sun worshiping, um, being a nudist goes, but also quickly demonstrates himself to be a rabid anti-Semite. And that is something that Engelhart just has no interest in, views as disqualifying, um, even thinks that one of the people that the young man was working with, was talking to, uh, was someone who Engelhart was familiar with and then remembered, oh yes, that man's a that man's a fierce anti-Semite, and that's why I don't much like him, and should have cued tipped me off a bit to who this person is. The young man also expresses viewpoints on free love, um, but more specifically that he feels that homosexuality is the intrinsic state of humanity, which Engelhart rejects, and is somewhat trying to ignore to a certain degree. But then the young man rapes McKelly. Uh, the young boy from the island that has been helping and working with Engelhard, that Engelhard has been teaching uh, German to. And about a day later, the young man, um, the way the scene is set is we just come across his body with his head burst open. And it's unclear if a coconut fell from the top of the tree and hit him, which can absolutely kill you. If uh, McKelly killed him, or if Engelhart, because of what he what, what had been done to McKelly, murdered him. Um, I believe, if I remember correctly from what I was reading, this person lived and did die. And it was recorded that he died when a coconut fell from the top of the tree and killed him. Um, but, you know, Cracks using this for his narrative and fictional purposes, you know, lays it out that it it is entirely possible that this sun-worshipping nudist who thinks that being a vegetarian isn't even enough, that you can only eat coconuts, who has a very hard time when he sees blood, uh, may have bludgeoned another person to death. I love the fact that there was no inquest about this fellow German's death, and he was just kind of unceremoniously buried in the in the German cemetery on, on the main island without really any you know, ceremony or anything like that. Was he also this, this Aachen guy? Was he also the, the guy that felt like he, in addition to coconuts, he from time to time wanted a banana? Yeah. There's a lot of funny, there's a lot of, there's a lot of funny things in the book that, that made me laugh out loud like that. But also some peculiarities of, of Engelhart. And one of the ones that I loved the most was when he, when he finds himself thinking hard about something or deep in thought, he starts sucking his thumb and he does this, he does this throughout the book. And I don't know, is this, did you find anything factually um, about the, the thumb sucking Engelhart? That, that I did not come across. Um, okay. But it's also, it's certainly used though to, and, and stated that it, 
it prefigures something potentially worse about Engelhard as as his thoughts um, progress. But like on the point of like the the varying viewpoints on vegetarianism and what you can and can't eat, when Engelhardt's in Australia, uh, he meets a uh, a young American named Halsey, who is a Seventh Day Adventist tried to get a job working with the Kellogg brothers, like as in the Kellogg's corporation that still exists to this day, who were in the process of getting, um, making cereal incredibly uh, prominent um, throughout the United States. Um, But Halsey thinks that the Kellogg's are doing it wrong because, um, I'm just going to flip to it because of course the writer nails down the conversation even better. That cereals were by no means the right path to pure Adventist doctrine because ingesting them into the body necessitated the addition of cow's milk. No one wanted to eat dry cereal alone, but the milk that provided the lubricant, as it were, was obviously an animal product. Thus, they must cease cereal production immediately and come up with something new that could teach the American consumer to be a vegetarian. Good Lord, off to Australia with him, the brothers thought, for they may have been pious adherents of their Adventist faith, but were simultaneously incorrigible, unalloyed Yankees, confident of business as a raisin dare. And so Halsey takes off to Australia, and when he meets Engelhart, he's trying to come up with some sort of spread that would give you all the nutrition you need, but would be entirely made of vegetables. Like there, there, it would never have to come anywhere near uh, an animal product in any way. And they start this conversation and Engelhart invites him to the island to spend a few weeks like trying out Engelhart's lifestyle while, while pondering, well, maybe maybe there's this is a better way to do it and 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 on top of it halsey can't figure out a good name for it he needs it to be a punchy great name in order for this to really take off and when he invites the guy to the island halsey is disgusted at the idea of like being a nudist only eating coconuts that living in some sort of communal you know communal whatever that he is just as much a capitalist as the kellogg brothers were and so they get into this massive arguments over over vegeta- basically over versions of vegetarianism, but then also how that vegetarianism is situated within their their larger um, worldview. Um, and then, it of course, turns out that Halsey is the one that created Vegemite. So for anyone who's ever had Vegemite and hated it, this is the man to blame. I, don't, I couldn't understand when I was reading that whole passage, like, where is peanut butter? Like, Halsey, come yeah. on. Like, you know, we've got something really yummy. It's called peanut butter already. That's, you know, totally plant-based. But um, <laughs> but anyway, there's another scene that's a little bit like that, um, really clever as well, where I think it's the governor is observing a hummingbird and and talking about, you know, like, oh, well, wouldn't it be interesting to have a device where people could hover around things like the hummingbird does around the flowers and the pollen? But, you know, the hummingbird does this by consuming um, large quantities of nectar from the from the flowers in order to have enough energy to, to hover like that. And then he says, you know, like, so obviously if we were ever going to have something like that, you know, the 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 means of um the the means of energy for it would have to be within the in the machine itself and it's just like well yeah he's talking about a helicopter i don't know it was just it reminded me very much of the vegemite thing where it's like 
you can see people's like like the wheels of their heads like clicking like oh yeah someone would should come up with something like that and then you know of course we now know that these these machines and these products exist but um super clever well it's also that this is such a i mean and it certainly hasn't slowed down by any means and it, it never it never has been slow but this is the effect of you know technology in some respects interacting with with civilization and 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 in this particular point in time you have such the movement from and we talked about this a little bit with in um job's grief this movement from like a much more primarily agrarian society into an urban one which then forces new needs and um new ideas to really take root and sometimes the the counterpoint to that is something like spiritualism that like sprung up or certain kinds of um, religious revivals. Um, But it's also things like, I don't know, a order of the sun where civilization seems to be so dreary and so terrible. Um, I mean, the one time or the one time that's relayed in the book that Engelhart goes to Berlin is under a heat dome um, that is causing people to like knock over the ice cream trucks and, that's been a top of the conversation of late with Arizona, I think is still under a heat dome Chicago was choking on the wildfire um, um, fumes from uh, Canada. Not, not too many weeks ago, that kind of would make you think that maybe you need to, to get away and reduce things and simplify and maybe find, maybe find a better way to live at the same time on the governor Hall's view on, on this is to think of, new things, new things that will make life more interesting or more possible or, or more engaging in some way. Um, Hall's a fun character. Yeah. I really liked him. Um, he, he is funny. He's definitely someone who's just in it for himself. You know, he, his, his morality is, um, a bit, a bit questionable, right? Flexible. Um, as, as we'll get into in a little bit, but, um, but he's he is a really interesting guy, a guy that that you feel like, you know, he's been around the block. He knows how to like maneuver himself and maneuver um, people in his colony to kind of fulfill what he thinks, um, what he wants done, what he thinks needs done. And he's also very willing to um, be a little dishonest and cut corners. But I, I want to, if you'll indulge me, get back to um, Engelhart's um, thumb sucking because putting his fingers in his mouth and his thumb in particular is kind of part and parcel a bit, I think of another, mm, you know, habit that Engelhart has. And while you, you can say that he only eats coconuts, he also has this disgusting habit of eating his own finger and toenails. (laughs) And he, I think, he justifies that because, you know, like, oh, well, this is just part of, of my own body. So I'm not, I'm not ingesting anything from the outside, um, other than coconuts. I'm just kind of replenishing my protein by eating my own, (laughs) my own fingernails. It, it made me laugh, uh, as so many parts of this book did, but, um, what do you make of that? It ties into a couple other things that uh, that we haven't quite talked about yet as well. One is that he also does drink a weird like slurry of dirt and water. Apparently, it was originally soil from Germany, and then it's whatever soil you can find. But the idea is that that's going to replenish his minerals. And the real Engelhart 
had a number of people in the vegetarian community that fundamentally disagreed with his viewpoint, one of whom um, made the argument shows up a bunch um, that said that he didn't he failed because he uh, didn't have a good transitional diet, that he wasn't that he went too hard in one direction and that frankly, one source of nutrients was never going to work, that sort of thing. And and clearly he's supplementing with dirt, apparently, and eventually himself. But I think that also ties in a bit to his musings about whether or not he himself is evolving into something new by his consumption of coconuts. That if at this point he is more coconut, a more comprised of coconut than a person, wouldn't eating your fingernails then just simply be eating more more coconut? Um, but then on top of that, uh, in his journey from journey, Germany, germ, journey from Germany, um, to, uh, to the island he ends up on, obviously he has to travel quite a ways, um, but he does make a, a stop in, um, uh, India. And while in India, uh, he starts, he's engaged in conversation, um, by a man named, uh, I have it written down. Uh, Govinda Rajan, who professes himself to be a vegetarian, eventually turns out to be a scam artist and and rips him off, steals a bunch of money from him. But in this, in this really like powerful to Engelhart conversation, um, where this person is like responding positively to all of Engelhart's beliefs that and and, and elaborating. Uh, upon them. And this is, you know, this is the younger Engelhart who seems much more willing to have conversation uh, about all this isn't, hasn't malnourished himself to the point where, and, and other issues where he can't possibly take on, you know, new viewpoints. One of the things that um, Govinda Rajan says to him is, you know, elaborating on the idea of the coconut as being the head of God. Well, if you're eating the coconut, aren't you then a, the a theophage? Aren't you then a devourer of God? And this idea clearly takes root in Engelhart's mind, like just sort of slowly working its way into all of his other beliefs and thought processes. So it may not even be cannibal as a form of cannibalism, the sucking of his thumb, the eating of his fingernails. It may simply be a form of worship at that point if he himself is becoming akin akin to some sort of a of godhood god status yeah and and we see that character uh the indian man comes back onto the island um where where Engelhart is is living well it's 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 a different island where he set up shop with um someone else ah you're right so Engelhart actually the this this is the last time that Engelhart leaves his island is to is to travel to because because from a letter from a friend, there is another German in an, on another island that is doing something similar to Engelhart. So he goes to try and find out what it is. And what he finds out is, of course, disturbing and hysterical all at the same time, I think. Time is very fuzzy and it's deliberately so like 
Engelhardt is clearly really not marking the passage of time other than m- maybe a bit at the outset when um, he is pro- he and the I- folks on the island are producing uh, materials for sale, specifically coconut oil. He would go um, to shore every couple of months to uh, pay his workers debts. And that's part of the way that, that they're being paid their wages. But that starts to trail off. But so this is but it's probably within the first year, two years of him being on his island. And he hears that there's someone else doing something just like he is, but that person seems to be drawing people to them to him. And so he travels there. And this is um maybe it was this trip that he took where he um comes back and the town is moved. Again, time's very fuzzy in this novel. But when he gets there, there's an entire community of younger people who are worshiping this man um, who is claiming to be able to live on light. He's eating the light. And it's tied into this idea, this Hindu idea, prana, and it's clearly just a, a whole jammed up thing. And when the guy steps out from his hut and proceeds to do what is described as improvised yoga poses and snap at the light like he's a cod. Um, <laughs> Engelhart, Engelhart is immediately pissed, and because the guy also looks robust, looks healthy, and Engelhart even before he got to the island was scrawny and a bit more than a bit waifish from how he ate and drank and mo- and just conducted like his just his lifestyle. And so once the guy goes back into his hut and all these you know young people are watching and explain to him what they're trying to learn and how this person clearly has ascended to his, to a new level, he storms up to the hut and rips the um the the uh, rug covering the opening to one side and finds the it's a German man and an Indian man um quickly standing up and trying to hide the fact that they've been chowing down on chicken <laughs> bread and and the Indian man turns out to be uh, uh, Govinda Rajan and. The, the the German man is like, I, I didn't mean for it to be this way. I wasn't trying to con anyone, but I had this idea and I was going to try it. And then people showed up and they started giving me gifts. And then by the time, like, by the time I, I realized this has gone too far, it had gone too far and everyone's giving me gifts. So I have to maintain it. And like, it's a con. It's just a complete con to enrich themselves. In somewhat of an epilogue of the novel, we find out that they continue to do this like all over the Pacific um, before they're eventually caught and arrested. Yeah, but but, but Engelhart won't isn't even going to expose him. He want what he first wants to know is is this real? He finds out it's not real and is like, well, you're clearly too weak because I only live on coconuts. Um, and then like you know turns on his heel and sweeps out of out of the room. So while he's there, um, and it's been mentioned a few times that he's, you know, got some scabs. He also likes to eat his scabs, um, which is... And other people's scabs. And other people's scabs. It's gross. But Govinda Rajan notices some of the open wounds on Engelhart's legs and immediately clocks that and even says to um, his partner in crime that we don't really need to worry about this guy for much longer. He's He's got a problem that he doesn't even realize he has which eventually you find out is he has leprosy. Um, we don't know exactly where he caught it. But there's there's a pretty good um, description of how he probably caught it. There's 
a piano is introduced. We'll get to that because this is one of my very favorite, besides Engelhart, one of my favorite characters in the novel is the musician Ludlow. Um, but um, yeah, a musician comes, a German musician comes to the island and at Engelhart's behest brings a piano and there happens to be a, a native man that's very interested in learning how to play the piano who has leprosy and one of his scabs comes off like from his fingers onto the piano and then um Engelhart uh the uh the cocovore decides to eat that man's scab on the keyboard oh. yeah I don't, I don't think we've used that term enough cocovore <laughs> and that's what that's what he describes himself as um and I also meant to mention this a, a, a little bit ago, but um, we have our second character that we, are, I mean, that's named, that has the name Angel built in. We had Ange in um, My Heart Hemmed In. Well, Engelhart translates to Brave Angel. So we have August Brave Angel, who is the cocovore and attempting to turn himself into God via eating the head of God, the coconut. Wild. I, I want to talk to you, if I can, about two kind of, broader thematic things. One is that I thought it was really quite interesting in this book that, you know, so many things that you read about fictional or non-fictional about people trying to create a utopia or a utopian society, there's some kind of spiritual or religious kind of aspect to it. And I kind of felt through all of this book, perhaps, I, I maybe there's some exceptions that you'll tell me about, but that Engelhart like really doesn't isn't interested in uh, certainly not in having like the the Christian God brought into this the utopian society, nor even you know like some of the the Eastern gods like the um, like the Hindu or, or or Buddhist or anything. He's just kind of trying to create this almost good people just based on the fact that they will be morally upright just by eating nothing but coconuts. Um, am I right on that? I mean, I, I to a certain degree, but I, there is a spiritual element to what Engelhart is trying to do. I mean, he does refer, I mean, I don't think he's talking purely in metaphor when he says that the coconut is growing closest to God. Like, I mean, there is, the sense of God almost feels more like a, um, spirit of humanity spirit of the age sort of sort of feeling you know gaia as it were maybe as as a comparison though i don't think that would be quite the right um that would line up exactly i mean there is there is a spiritual element to it but it, it seems to me much more as you were saying living in living in harmony with nature the way that we're supposed to live which obviously has some very built-in prescriptive like decisions around it right like this is how you're supposed to be versus living well by other people treating other people well and you know living within society but yeah i mean i i think his viewpoint and his his spiritual direction is really quite muddled he feels you could almost call him a do your own research guy like it feels like this is the sort of thing that he's read about. He's decided that this is the right way to live. And so he's going to write about it. And everyone, you know, he's going to, he, he gives out pamphlets like crazy. He gets beat up on a few occasions back in Germany because he pisses off the authorities with, with his viewpoints. 
if he lived today, he would have, you know, during um, lockdowns, probably been writing about how, you know, whatever particular horse tranquilizer was perfect for um, killing off COVID. Um, I think he's that kind of person. Well, and he did write a book before he moved to the island. And that book kind of, um, after he's been on the island a while, kind of brings him some some unwanted fame. But the other kind of thematic thing that I wanted to talk to you about is that there's a lot of art infused in this book. You know, um, Engelhart's quite a cultural man. I mean, he's an educated man. So he talks about, he reads German books to um, to the native boy. He he knows, you know, German composers and he knows German art. And there is a point in time, probably about two thirds of the way through the book, where he comes to this, I don't know if it's an epiphany or what, that he says, you know, well, maybe, maybe my life is actually a work of art. Maybe that's the real art is not these artistic compositions that other people have created, but, but basically the way that I'm living my life. And I wanted to get your opinions on, on that. And, and whether that's just him like drinking his own Kool-Aid or, um, or how that kind of reverberates through the rest of the novel. Yeah. I, I, um, flagged that, that moment too. Um, suddenly the thought occurred to him that possibly he himself was his own artistic artifact and that perhaps the paintings and sculptures exhibited in museums or the performances of famous operas constitute a completely outmoded conception of art. Indeed, that only through his Engelhardt's existence was the divide between art and life bridged. Yeah. I mean, this is serious main character energy. Like this is, I'm, I am the most special boy. Um, I've clearly hit upon something. And is that, is that, does that precipitate what becomes, you know, his fall, basically? Like things start going really haywire, um, with his coconut production and, and just his sanity and his reputation, uh, over in the main island with the, with the German colony. Um, do you think that's kind of a, a turning point? Uh, Probably. I mean, I think Crack does a really great job, and I think this is one of the ways that he realizes the the character so well, of you know laying out a point like this, but then very frequently, I don't think he does it in exactly this moment, but he very frequently t- goes, but this is not the only thing that contributed to it. Like he's, he's trying to create the whole nexus of events and pressures and circumstances that have the outcome of Engelhart lo- like losing his mind. And going from eating his fingernails to eating something more than, more than that. Um, But I think it's also, I mean, this is where I think some of the things that he's doing with the other characters like governor hall are also reflected a bit where you have a, a location and a time and not even just the location, just a, a time when there's so many countervailing forces at play and so many paths open to people. You can be the governor of um, the German empire in um, the South Pacific um, and also be reading every, you know, every tract that is being published back in Berlin and theorizing about engineering, you know, engineering something that is, you know, sustaining, but can hover like a hummingbird. I mean, I think it's sort of a, 
frack of a better word, phrase, like a wild west of ideas and times. And this is how it's being expressed in this one person in Engelhart. But he puts himself into an even more extreme situation by really just cutting himself off from other people and malnourishing himself, like very deliberately malnourishing himself. But in terms of like a, a, a serious turning point in where he's going, I mean, it, it, it probably is. And actually glancing at the page again, it continues with, he smiled again, dispatching this delectable, solipsistic fancy into a secret and remote, remote corner of his edifice of ideas, set up and opened a coconut while inspecting the wounds in his legs, which oozing had grown ever larger in recent weeks. So yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think, I think this thought occurs to him. He goes, ah, that's funny and puts it away, but it's there and it's taking root and it's changing. It, it's just, if an idea like that would definitely find fertile soil in um, someone like Engelhart's mind. Yeah. Well, maybe we can talk about my second favorite character, Ludlow, a bit. And I'm hoping that you will tell me from your research um, how Mr. Ludlow ultimately dies because it's quite spectacular in the novel. And if it, <laughs> I can't imagine it really went down like that in real life. No, he did not die that way. I was just doing a, a, I, I didn't think he had, <laughs> he, he got sick and died. Um, you, you should tell this one. It's incredible. Well, I will, but I think some, some background about Ludlow's uh, time on the Island with Engelhart first, he's there for a year um, before they have a falling out. Um, and he leaves, but, um, he's a musician, you know, I feel like fairly well known in Germany. Um, he comes to Papua New Guinea and of course on the main Island, uh, the colony there, you know, he has to play at the hateful German culture club and he really despises hanging out with all of these people who, you know, try to put on airs and try to act sophisticated, even in this remote island in the middle of the Pacific. He then goes out with the piano that Engelhardt has, has asked for. And I think he goes ostensibly to tune the piano because he can't stand a, an untuned piano. I think there's um there's a line that I really liked. It was like, for Ludlow, an untuned uh, instrument was like being a painter and not having the use of reds or blues. Um, so it was, it's, uh, he kind of, uh, you know, spends some time on the island, gets the piano in as well enough shape as it can be in this kind of uh, humid environment and uh, kind of befriends Engelhart and decides to also become a cocoa for <laughs> um, And they live in, in pretty good harmony for quite some time. He, uh, Ludlow loves hanging out with the natives. As I mentioned before, there's a, a local, I think he's a chief of, of the tribe, that uh, is just mesmerized by the piano music and really just wants to learn how to play and even like builds his own kind of makeshift piano out of plants and, you know, tries to, uh, tries to emulate the sounds that, that Ludlow makes. But then there seems to be... Uh, just a um i don't know if it's because they're both like malnourished and they're kind of at tether's end but they have a a pretty extraordinary fight 
Tom, do you remember what some of the circumstances are around why they fight? The falling out is the seed of it um, sort of is formed when they are called in by. Uh, so Lula, Lula arrives um, and they start writing letters um, back to Germany talking about this island and, and the, this way of life and how incredible it is. Because because he fled Germany and he was a he was a composer. He had his own orchestra because he kept getting sick, but everyone kept telling him you're not sick. He even goes to see Freud and Freud turns him out. And so he's basically fleeing the world and he's trying to find somewhere where he can live and be away. He feels that Berlin is too provincial, that everything is crushing in on him. So he gets to the island and he feels amazing and everything's better. And I don't know, clean air would probably do you a lot of good coming from early 20th century Berlin. Um, sunshine. Sunshine, uh, fresh food, all good. Um, so he gets there and he start, they start reading these letters and, and Engelhart had also written letters and was trying to like build his community. That was his goal at the outset, but no one was publishing them. No one was really listening. But this composer has something else going for him. He, he's actually an established person and respected. Um, now, some of the newspapers published the letters, but with the header of, oh, this famous composer has uh, now gone and joined up with a madman on an island and is walking around naked. But here's his letter anyways. <laughs> um, and so it drew people in. All of a sudden, folks, younger folks who were trying to flee from similar things who already had the idea of vegetarianism or nudism or cocovorism i can't believe i just said that um in their heads start flocking um flocking there um but they get stuck in the regional capital and so the governor calls them in because it's really creating a problem of these bearded half naked or fully naked germans wandering around town barely eating anything um they don't have any money to pay for mosquito nets so they're all getting sick the first one that arrives there dies and so the, the governor hauls them in to basically be like, we need to figure out a way for this to stop. Like, I need you guys to stop writing these letters. We need to find a way to deal with these people. And Lilla puts forward an argument for what, the, what they are doing and what the island is. Yeah, what their lifestyle is supposed to be about and how it's communal and how it's all these things. And he starts listing them off, rattling them off. And um, Engelhart immediately... Um, is uncomfortable, more than uncomfortable. He he does not know who this man is who thinks he can speak for his order, for for his way of life. So I'll pause uh, you there for a minute, if I may. So yeah, there there's an interesting conversation that they have with Governor um, Hall about what to do with these. I think that says like that's 25 people that have, you know, come to shore from Germany and are not at all equipped to deal with life in a colony um, in the middle of nowhere and are sick and are, and the governor has moved them to one of the two hotels in the colony. And although I think that you're right, that Engelhart does not like the fact that maybe Ludlow is talking about, um, like what the purpose uh, is of their project or what they're trying to do. He, he doesn't like that, that Ludlow is kind of taking the reins. There also seems to be some, um, some resentment by uh, Engelhart that Ludlow is bringing in all of these socialists and, and um, 
philosophers and trying to kind of make um, Engelhardt's Cocovore utopia into something that that approximates uh, some other, but somebody else's idea, and that makes him very angry as well. Lula brings up a couple people that um, Engelhardt describes as uh, an anti-Semite. Another one was a Philistine. Um, expression of a shabby Philistine utopia of the petty bourgeois governed to top it all off by an obsessive sex drive. So, I mean, like he takes serious shots at what uh, his friend is saying and and Lula immediately goes quiet. Um, and Hall recognizes that there's something happening between these two men in this moment. They resolve to like, I mean, Engelhart takes out further debt or, you know, puts forward more money on future earnings on his coconut oil in order to pay for all these people to be sent back home and they'll stop. So, I mean, Engelhardt's initial idea of creating a community, he had an opportunity of sorts to have one there and he runs away from it. Like he takes it steps to prevent it from taking place. But from there, it seems that the relationship just deteriorates in particular, there are, there are a pair of scissors that Engelhardt uses to clip his nails and they go missing. And it's stated at one point that, I mean, Engelhart actually briefly considers killing his friend, but um, it's stated that um, McKelly swipes them, makes them go missing. And he might be doing this every so often. And it leads to Engelhart accusing Ludlow of stealing the scissors, which Ludlow's like, I, I, I didn't steal your scissors. I don't know why we're having an argument about this. And it just gets more and more heated with Lolo finally being like, look, if you don't want me here anymore, I don't need to be here. And Engelhardt's like, great, you should go then. And he leaves. And um, it then is said that McKelly thinks to himself that it had taken him a year of work to get rid of this new intruder. Um, so clearly there's there are other forces and other people working on this island um, that are part of the community that Engelhart probably wouldn't recognize as part of his community that are exerting some control over him, which is interesting. Yeah. And then the novel, um, I'm interested in why you think Crocht did this, um, the author, but he pretty much tells us in the narrative, okay, now things are going to like go really fast, you know, and yeah. it's, you know, we're, we're now like, 30 pages from the end of the book and and they really do i mean suddenly like this is happening this is happening that's happening and why do you think why do you think that he made that decision why not just like make this a 300 page book and just kind of let it play out on its own good time whether that then have this like really abrupt kind of condensation of like all of these wrapping up almost like the end of a of a film with the credits like okay this is what this is what ended up happening with this guy and this is what ended up happening with this guy yeah i mean it's kind of crazy how many um characters are introduced and are amazing characters in the last i mean so that argument and all and him leaving the island takes place on page 138 and the book ends on page 179 like you're like literally you're right it's like 40 pages and we're done i think it's I mean, I think it's two things, actually. I think it's because uh, World War One is about to break out, and that changes everything. 
Um, it changes who's in control of the territory. I think it, when, when I was mentioning like all the different pathways open to people um, earlier, I think a lot of those start to close down after World War One and World War II. Like, I think there is a, a thrust to history from here. And I think in some ways that's what Cracked is talking about as well. I mean, the book opens talking about um, how this is the era at the beginning of uh, ger- the century at w- in which Germany will take its place um, in control of, uh, of the world, functionally. Yeah, Germans at the global zenith of their influence, which is about to come crashing down and change. And Germany's about to take a very dark turn over the next while. And so I think it's partially because in the general timeline, World War One's about to happen, and that changes ability for someone like Engelhardt to the figure that he represents, the moment in, in time that, that he is a part of, is coming to a close. So now we're going to move into the next part. I also think it's because there is a cinematic quality to how he writes. And this is the part of the movie where the action kicks in. I mean, the climax of the novel, in some ways, is the composer leaving the island. From here, we're just tying up loose ends, introducing a lot of new material, but also tying up some loose ends, um, expanding the scope so as to also to simultaneously narrow it. Yeah, we see the return of a character named Sluter, and I don't know whether we want to give give away how this novel ends, Tom. Um, but no, I mean, I don't think we have to go into like a, a, a full blow by blow. Also, because I think it's really, fu- I mean, the, the whole novel is amazing. This is the part that, in some ways, is like fun. This is the this is the action part of the novel, and it delivers. It is it is it is fast paced. It, it is exciting. It is terrifying at times. He he, un, like he just delivers on every possible emotion, emotional register. It's really really cool. So so let's just say like World War One happens. The island like that territory is taken over um by uh, the Australians as part of the British Empire, and in the real world, in our world, Engelhart lives till about 1919, and then is found dead on the island. In the novel, he pretty much disappears. The Australians show up on the island. They offer him uh, six pounds as um, recompense for taking it from him. He throws it at their feet and he walks into the jungle and they don't follow him. And Engelhart disappears. And then we hear how everyone else lives and dies. Um, we will touch on what happens to Ludlow. And actually, let's just do that right now. <laughs> so when Ludlow leaves, he goes back to the, the regional uh, Herbertstra, Herbertstra, and he basically meets Emma. She reappears. Um, and they almost don't even speak to each other. There's just this immediate connection. He pulls her to him. They kiss. They have sex, and they immediately get like they get married within two weeks. They have sex on the on the beach, like immediately. Um, which you have to think there's probably people watching, and and in fact, Governor Hall the next morning, you know, knows all about it. Um, and it turns out that Governor Hall has for a long time had a had a, a crush on um, Queen Emma. So he's not so happy about the fact that um, Ludlow and, and Queen Emma now um, are, are wanting to get married. And they, they ask that, um, that the governor marry them. And he makes up some kind of lame excuse that he can't. And he says, well, you should go down to the docks because um, Sluter's here and his boat is is docked and he's down there and a ship's captain can definitely marry you 
And so that's what they do. Um, they get married by Sluter, who is a character that we see early on in the book, who then comes back and plays even a bigger role than this than marrying these two. But he does marry them. And you think that maybe they're going to live happily ever after, but they don't, at least in the novel. <laughs> no. Um, so everyone's drinking on the boat and uh, being convivial. And the main ships that bring supplies, um, I think it's like the, the Prince Valdemir or something like that. Um, is I think it's the mail ship. Yeah, yeah. Is pulling into the harbor. And the composer gets it in his head to like try and like jump to the ship in celebration or something along those lines. And so he runs up and his foot slips while he's holding a glass of champagne in either end. And at that moment, the mail ship is getting a little too close and he falls in between the two ships and they, and he gets slammed between them, his entire body. He is completely crushed, like between these two ships destroyed. And it's shocking. It's, what the hell it's horrible and funny at the same time yes i mean it's 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 wild it's it's a very wild way for i mean and and in some respects it kind of draws the main action uh, of the novel to an end i mean after that we pretty much just get a some quick hit some more people come through the the german what german presence there is there becomes even more you know it's taking a harder turn towards the right, towards the Nazis. Yeah, more and more real historical figures start to appear um, and did visit the island. But there's a way in which this is almost the the end uh, of the book, I would say, with, with his death. I mean, the rest of it very much feels more like epilogue than everything else. Yeah, and in this quick fire kind of, of way that we are wrapping up, um, kind of like, and here's what happened to this character. Um, you know, there's there, there's not there's not a lot of um, of space or or I, I don't know how to quite say it, but you really don't feel much emotion for what's happening. It's almost like wow, this is crazy. And then you hear about what happened to the next person. So when I say it's funny, it might sound like very unfeeling, but I feel like there's not a lot on the page that makes you think that you should be feeling something for the way poor Ludlaw died other than kind of like incredulous. Absolutely. And, and also there's um, the description of how Emma, I mean, Emma poised on the Jetta, that's the name of Sluter's ship, in a yellowed wedding dress, not only witnesses the incident, but more or less has it imprinted in slow motion onto her retina, image by tumbling image. She sh sinks down onto, uh, on one knee in shock as if in a sudden prayer. Everything has happened so horribly fast. But I mean, like, again, that whole cinematic quality, like this would be the scene in the movie where it cut, like you don't, you see him fall, but you're seeing him fall against the like image of her eyes and it being reflected there. And I mean, like he's bringing that into it. And I think, I think this acceleration, like, again, like it's not just the World War One, it's the World War One, but it's the cinematic quality to it, but it's just how fast everything changes from here on out. And I mean, we're, we're coming I think we're coming very much coming to the end of our, our conversation on it. Um, I did want to point out that Engelhart very much loses it and starts digging up um, traps all over the island because he thinks people are, are going to come for him. And at this point, he is 
he is self-cannibalizing. I mean, he is eating himself. Um, this is what he feels he's been driven to. More than just his fingernails and toenails, he's like cutting off his thumb and eating it. Yeah, cut off his thumb and um, index finger. Like, I mean, he's he is mutilating himself and then consuming um, his own body parts. And there's a scene with, where Sluter is on the island with him as he's breaking. But at that same moment, um, McKelly leaves the island. I think it's either, I think it's Sluter even at one point looks at McKelly and thinks to him that, thinks to himself how German the boy looks, that how he holds himself and how his English and his German and just how he interacts, he presents as a, as a German, um, despite looking nothing like what he, Sluter would consider a German to look like. McKelly leaves. McKelly at this point, cries as he does so but realizes that his time on his time on the island is at an end and i think there's something i don't know i haven't really thought about it long enough i don't think but there's something really interesting that that cracked is doing with mckelly throughout this like how much he's interwoven into engelhart's life even though he doesn't appear that consistently how much of the action that takes place within this community or this aborted i think you use the word project within this you know aborted project is driven by McKelly and in some ways how Engelhart finds like the most solace in his time on the island, educating and you know, reading to um, McKelly. I feel like there's something going on there around colonialism. I think there's something going on there around like, you know, failed utopias and, and what they bring. Um, and also just something about youth moving on, but I haven't quite, I kind of wanted to highlight it because I think that it's definitely an important theme and an important thread of the novel but it's just not one i've um quite nailed down in my own head yet i don't think yeah it's a good point i i don't recall mckelly ever saying a word in the book no i mean he doesn't seem to i mean it's suggested that he speaks to Engelhart, but we never there's never any direct address to anyone else that we hear about even when even when lulo's spending a year on the island his interaction with mckelly seems you know nominal at best. But all the same, I don't feel like McKelly is without agency in some ways because he definitely is is quietly working to get all of these men other than Engelhart, um, who were told that like as soon as Engelhart um comes to the island, McKelly is like right there and never leaves his side the whole time. So I don't know whether McKelly is feeling threatened by these men or, um, you know, just wants to have his hero to himself, but he doesn't, yeah, he, there's really no, we don't really know what McKelly's thinking or, or what, what's in his head. But also I was just thinking it'd be so when you were describing him that it would be so interesting to have a sequel to this novel and be all about McKelly, um, Sorry, it's set up that way. Like we do get, yes. we do get a quick scene in McKelly, and he basically paddles away with another character. We're not going to go into too much, but another young person that they just sort of paddle away, and maybe they make it to Australia, maybe they go somewhere else. But there's just like everyone else. There's a very firm ending to. There is not a firm ending to uh, to McKelly in the same way. No, and you almost think that like maybe that's the hopeful thread of the book in the end that maybe maybe these two young people after the wars are going to be able to you know 
make a go of it together. They're also the two blending of cultures. I mean, she is British, but also ha- this is the young woman that goes away with McKelly. Um, Pandora. Pa- um, which is great. Their name is Pandora. Um, but she's she's British, but she also um, has just been um, tattooed by Amari. Um, she clearly is like pulling she's pulling in this whole the whole culture of uh, of the of the area. McKelly is from there but has been given a German education, speaks English. I mean they are they're yeah, maybe I'm getting like too hopeful, but maybe they're that's the hopeful idea of this sort of um uh cultural integration that there's something there's something new that can come out of it. I th- I think to end it end it and end it with a, the idea of the cinema, and I can cut this part if you think we shouldn't give it away, but Englehart in real life dies in 1919. In the novel, he is found on the island in World War II. He's still alive. He's missing both his thumbs. His leprosy has somehow been cured. He is uh, found by um, the U.S. Navy. They start to um, question him, and because he's talking to people for the first time, his German comes back, and then his English comes back, and he starts telling this story. And and again, in this rapid-fire manner, the um, officer interviewing him goes, man, what a tale. Wait till Hollywood hears about you. And the last freaking paragraph of the novel it describes the director sitting in the front row at the premiere as and just describes like how this tale is going to be shown on the screens and move through and this this vision of like this silver age of hollywood after world war ii like it's wild Lori. it's such a wild way to end the novel yeah yeah it really is and and i think that in some ways it it ties back to this what is art what is life kind of kind of thing which makes me even more ashamed of the fact that i didn't know that this was based on a true story (laughs) well i i i read this book i don't know what four years ago i didn't find that out until just this past week laurie so do not you're ahead of it you're ahead of the curve on me that's for sure um yeah but i it mean it just is is so is so crazy but but yeah i i do think that this this what we called the epiphany for Engelhard about you know maybe maybe the way that I'm living my life being this cocovore utopian is is the real art you know and then just thinking about creating creating a work of cinematic art at, out of this out of this crazy story that we we just um, we just read it's. This is just a wonderful novel, and I I know that I'm going to be reading it again, recommending it to people. It's thank you for this great discovery, Tom. It's it's fantastic. Well, I'm so pleased you like it, and yes, it is. Um, it's a phenomenal novel. It is one that I think uh, anyone who's listening to this podcast would absolutely devour and love. And um, there's one other work of uh, Cracks that's been uh, translated into English. He's been translated into seemingly every, seemingly every other language um, on the planet, but only two of his novels are in English. We really want more and more and more, more of them. More, please, please. more. Um, but um, yeah, definitely, definitely enjoy the ones that <laughs> definitely grab these two. Uh, the other one's called The Dead. Um, and uh, I think, I don't think you'll be disappointed at all. Guarantee it.